Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here today with my brother, Christian Lewis. We're speaking to Simon O'Connor of Simon Doom. You can learn more about the podcast at brotherpod.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Now let's talk to Simon O'Connor about Simon Doom, his new album, Baby Man, and his new single, I Feel Unloved, which will be featured on Noisy this week. Anyway, let's get to talking to Simon. Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis. I'm here with my brother, Christian Lewis. So it's a Brother, Brother podcast today. And we're here with Simon O'Connor of um, several bands. Actually, I'll let Simon introduce him himself, more or less, because uh, uh, his biography is is uh, rich and uh, intricate. So Thank you, Wyndham. Thank you, Christian. Um, so yeah, I am Simon O'Connor also occasionally known as Simon Doom, uh, and I also been playing with Lilies recently, and uh, Falsa Doom, my hardcore cross-punk band that I've been playing with since I was 14, a um, band called Subcults who hasn't played a show, and uh, I will be playing with MGMT starting in a couple weeks. And uh, that's it for now. For uh, Chroma, not anymore. And Amazing, Amazing, Amazing Baby, Baby was well. There might be an Amazing Baby reunion this summer. Nice. Um, and Style of Fun, which I just told you about. And uh, do you have to keep this on a card in your pack? Like a no, list I'm good. Now I'm going back <laughs> chronologically. Uh, Irma Vep was a band I was in in oh, college. Yeah. Um, then Monsters of Rock was another band I was in, and that's it. College being the, uh, indie rock hotbed of, uh, Wesleyan Sure, University. yeah, Wesleyan University. Also Christian's also, mother's alma mater. That's right. Really? She's there in the Bill Belichick years, back in uh, the, uh, back in the mid-70s, yeah. He spoke at our graduation. Oh, yeah? But I don't remember what he said. You know what I mean? <laughs> like most graduates yeah. of Wesleyan, you are uh-huh. not... Probably fully coherent at the, yeah. at the uh, ceremony. Uh, Simon also um, the loving uh, contributor of "Hair of the God," the opening uh, track for "Brother, Brother, Brother." That's podcast. true. That's a Simon Doom song. Technically, the uh, the first ever listen, kind of public listening, unveiling, unveiling of a song uh, song from the album. Is coming out. So Simon, is Simon Doom, uh, this is your second album with Simon Doom? Or? No, this is the first This album. is the first one, okay. You've had a couple of EPs. A couple of EPs. Yeah. Uh, and so actually, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Baby Man, uh, which you say comes out in, in May. Mm-hmm. Um, what's, I mean, it seems like there's a, uh, I mean, the, the lyrics here are really, you know, sort of personal and, and I think uh, pretty, uh, pretty, pretty present right so it's like it, sort of the last couple of years of your life has been sort of a big influence in that or uh, yeah like, so Simon Doom like most of my projects 
or not most of my projects. Like a lot of I I I've attempted to go solo, quote unquote, many times, and always kind of veiled it under the uh, like guise of a of a of a joke. Like it was a joke project because which basically meant if if you don't like it, it's funny, right? But if you <laughs> if you do, it's serious. But um, you know, because I was playing with Karoma at the time and. Uh, Simon Doom was just, I was just writing, all the other guys in Karoma at that point were also in MGMT who were touring for their third record, so I was left alone here a lot and would just kind of write what I thought were Karoma songs, and actually it was Ben Goldwasser from MGMT who I played some of them for, and he said, and I would sing them, he said, these aren't Karoma songs, they don't sound like Karoma, like this is your own project, and, uh, I never thought of myself as a singer, partly because I had been playing my, you know, the first band I was ever in was called Aneurysm, and uh, I was 11 when I started that band, and then I, then I quit that band when I was 12, and started, oh, I didn't mention these bands, started Social Disease when I was 13, which was kind of a, kind of a oi band, and then when I got back from camp, the singer of Social Disease had been deported, so then I started Tulsa Doom, but regardless, my voice hadn't changed yet at all, so I was kept, <laughs> I was absolutely, like, not allowed anywhere near the microphone, which kind of solidified me as a guitarist, even though I imagined myself as a Kurt Cobain from the get-go. I just, puber- I was ready to... Prepubescent rage is, is, yeah. a, is a difficult thing it's to It's the worst sound in the world. The, the pubescent voice, the pubescent <laughs> male voice is just like, uh, you know, you can kind of hear the grease on the face. And <laughs> yeah, the, well, you have that to look forward to. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, anyway, so I, Simon Doom is just kind of, a recording project, and I got and I got called up some of my buddies who I actually went to like guitar camp with, and said, "Do you want to come in to the studio and record some songs?" They did, and then they kind of were enjoying it. Like, we should play live, and I did. But then it wasn't very serious. Karoma was my main thing, and uh, when my when he was born, my son, uh, I had this kind of freak out that was like, here's the doomsday clock getting punched. Um, I only have, I can't really, I don't have time to dream about what I want to do anymore. Like I have to do it immediately. And I wrote, uh, all the songs on the record, like within a little more than a month, like right after, right after one another. And I was just, and then shit just got real. Yeah. It got real. And I was like, because all the other songs are kind of jokey. I mean, some of them, you know, but this was all very serious and personal stuff. Um, and also about the exact point, uh, emotionally of where I was and, 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 and kind of, and a, a, age-appropriate pop songs, in a way. Like, they weren't for teenagers. So, they were for yeah, people so there's who were definitely, a, like, a strong sort of autobiographical streak in here. I mean, you know, some about family members and that sort of thing. I mean, I, it sounds like... The, the, the idea of, like, a one-month-long writing spree sounds like... I mean, that's, like, a really strong compulsion to, to sort of get it out there, right? So yeah. it's sort of, like... Did you find... I mean, in terms of writing lyrics, like, you'd done that, obviously, for, for um, other bands before. But, like... This process, you said it was it was right after your son was born. Right? Yeah, okay. it was easier because I I'd written I'd always written lyrics that were um, for other people, and that in a way is is it's harder and it, it's harder because you need to kind of if you write something you realize that well that's what I think I don't know if this is what they think I don't know if this is what they're going to necessarily feel comfortable singing, 
Uh, so I would have to tweak it and change it and maybe make it a little bit more generic and make and make it less personal. But with this, I didn't have to go through that second process. I could just write something and it would and that that was that. And uh, I think that was easier. It was also, you know, you get this shot of natural adrenaline when you know your baby is an infant because you have to stay up all night and you have to do all this fucking crazy shit. And I think that I was using that to. Uh, you know motivate motivate me yeah well speaking of I mean you, we've established now that you've been in 37 bands since you were 11 yeah. years old um, how do you how do you shift gears like how do how do you like I mean there's gonna be say I mean even from the live experience like you're gonna be playing uh, clubs you know you know squats squats venues <laughs> and festivals probably yeah. this summer um well, up until now, the way I shift gears is failure, I think, is, is, the, is the motivator. Because uh, one of the great things about never having real success is that it frees you up to pursue something else very different almost immediately. Or in. return yeah. to Old Faithful, which is Tulsa Doom, which is a band that, you know, I kind of hit something... On, on the head in like the late 90s that seems to people seem to keep drawing from and we can play a couple of great shows a year and that's a lot of fun but like um, you know I talk to people you know even Andrew and Ben or anybody who's been who is, has been a, their first or second band has become extremely successful they have to work within those confines for the foreseeable future until they fail or until they gracefully move on which is difficult um and i've been able to you know i think a lot of it was i mean growing up in new york there 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 were no there was no people who liked rock and roll in my high school there's one guy and that's my friend jason who was also in stylophone but in the whole high school it was just, it was the late 90s new york was a rap town and uh um i was you know stretching bobito era oh like, yeah yeah it's the greatest and but but it's also like i grew up on on nirvana and stuff like that and, and wanted to i don't know i just feel like i wanted to the punk scene was always there and it was also kind of it was the the post rancid and green day you know who had been big heavy injection of like of yeah sort of almost silly by by the sort of militant East Coast standards yeah, like totally. of, you know silly like um, freewheeling like you know SoCal punk which just it, it's like bright colors and you know uh, we, we talk a lot about like age and you know the you know the sort of your scope of experience um, on Brother 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 so like walk us through growing up in New York music wise um, you know you're uh, in elementary school in the late 80s, early 90s? Or? No, I mean elementary school. So uh, I was born in 1983. Um, I loved, I always loved, I loved the Beatles and, you know, and I, and Michael Jackson when I was a little kid and things like that. And David Bowie, um, or ju I think just Space Oddity I love, but, but that's because of the space. I mean, it also made me cry, apparently. But, um, <laughs> uh... When I was very into movie soundtracks, I would like movies and I would get the soundtracks and I would listen to the soundtracks on repeat. 
and kind of rewatch the movie in my head. Like which, Tangerine Dream kind of soundtracks, or, or well, the, no, the, mm, like, let's, I would say Danny Elfman. Well, yeah. both, yeah, both. I didn't know the difference. Um, so let's say when Prince came out, I mean, sorry, when Batman came out, I wanted the Danny Elfman score, but I bought the record with the, the big, dance. the big, yeah. you bat know, bat on it. symbol on it, and I was like, "What is this? Whatever." I'm five. I'm going to listen to it over and over again. That's great. And got to know that. And then the Dick Tracy soundtrack, I actually bought the record of Madonna singing, you know, the uh, cabaret songs, which was yep. not, it does not stick at all. But, um, but I also got, I think Danny Elfman did the music for that too. Probably. Maybe. He, he did, I think yeah, he did the, every the movie. The Elfman era was, that was my soundtrack. And then Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure I was very excited by. So when Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey came out, I loved that movie. Big Wild Stallions fan? Big Wild Stallions fan, and I bought the soundtrack to that. And on that soundtrack, it was, the first time it was like different bands. It was a compilation. It was a rock soundtrack. It was like, you know. Extreme was on it? Extreme were not on it. Winger were on it. Winger, uh, who, Slaughter. Uh, there's the only, and then there was like it wasn't Buckethead, it was Joe Satriani, somebody like that. Extreme was in the in the in the movie. They weren't on the soundtrack. They were. Yeah. No, they were the first one. Do you want to play? Yeah. That's I'm talking about the second oh, one. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, that one, the one that uh, yeah, they were that. The, I didn't get the first soundtrack because that predated the first movie. Predated my I was too young when it came out. Yeah, yeah Cognizance. But the second one, I was right there, and on the soundtrack was Faith No More. And this is like, I was seven, and I was, and I loved this song, this Faith No More song, uh, "Perfect Crime," and I still do. Um, and so I had this idea that this was the kind of music I liked, but I didn't have any older siblings. I didn't have there were no teenagers in my life. There were no really older kids. Just my parents, and I didn't know where to look for it. And then I was just I was just listening to. I know the feeling. Yeah, just listen to <coughs> mainstream Z One Hundred and. Uh, <coughs> I love like I'm too sexy was a, I thought that was a great song and then I heard it is <laughs> I'm imagining the playlist yeah. that's that's like developing here <laughs> yeah. right now for this totally. episode and like and then I heard Nirvana and I was like oh this is like Faith No More and that was it and I and then I would just kind of consume Nirvana information it was the first show I ever went to when I was ten years old which it, one at w- the Roseland no I was in California my grandparents live in Oakland so I would go out there for uh, holidays. And I was out there for Christmas and New Year's Eve, and Nirvana were playing at Oakland Coliseum, and they hadn't sold it out at all. It was general admission to the whole stadium. And, so uh, it's a shitty arena. Yeah, I it was a shitty arena, there. but I could get super close. I got there really early. I saw Choke Boar, then I saw Bobcat Gulfweight do stand-up comedy, then I saw the Butthole Surfers. <laughs> <laughs> with, and they showed operation videos in the back. Yeah, I, I remember that. I couldn't watch it because I was 10. I yeah, was they would like, show, is... the bundle surfers would do a split screen on the back and they would show nature videos oh, of yeah. like deer running through the woods. And then on yeah. the other one, they would show um, sexual reassignment surgery. Yes. That's what I was, yeah, there this, you go. This sounds like something you'd find on the TV at Duff's. Yeah, um, that or, you know, yeah. something you'd have your eyelids the, peeled open totally. for at the end of Clockwork Orange. Exactly. <laughs> But I was, I, my head was turned, and then Nirvana came on, and I, I later read that this was during a two-week sober period. They kicked ass They were off. amazing. And Kurt Cobain was talking to the crowd. He was dancing. He was really into it. They played for like two and a half hours. They played on the plug set. Wow. They counted it down, 93, 94. 
And that and then that was that. I was going to say that sounds like a completely life changing experience, yeah. right? I mean, it, like they're you know, it's maybe it's uh, it's oversimplifying things to look for like huge and infl- you know inflection points. Yeah. Like, but that I mean that's got to be like uh, uh, something that really you know steered sort of music taste and consumption yeah. from there. Right? Absolutely, it's it, it did that and 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 that caused me to kind of start playing guitar. I was already playing guitar. I mean, Nirvana immediately. I started playing guitar when I was eight. But then that, I needed to form a band, and I met some older kids also like Nirvana, and then we formed Nirvana cover band. And then... And that's where aneurysm, the name, came from. Exactly. And then, right as I was forming, he killed himself. And I remember... I was very sad by it, but I also wasn't fully surprised. My dad had said something to me that he kind of prepped me for it. He knew it was going to happen. Yeah, it wasn't a tough call. I, I made that call myself. And yeah, we, we I was going to ask you that. We, uh, I went on my 24th birthday. I took Jeremy to see Nirvana. Uh, they were played two nights. They played at the Roseland, and they played at the New York Coliseum, and uh, which is the place where they'd have like boat shows. It was like the Javits Center. Right. And uh, I walked out of there, and I said, I'm really psyched that we went to see these guys because this guy's going to be dead in six months. Did Jeremy get it? Yeah, I mean everybody. Everybody remembers it. I, I didn't fully get it. I uh, I remember he because he OD'd in Rome first, right? And then when I went into school, my teacher said, "I'm so sorry." So I'm like, "What? He's he's gonna be fine. He's in a coma. He's fine." And then he <laughs> came out of the coma, and then he died. Like, <laughs> he, he was he was fine. He was I mean, fine. Yeah, in fairness, fairness, he did bounce yeah, back but, out of that coma. But you know, and sadly, he was still married. Yeah, and there was and so anyway, then I was in that band, and and I kind of like. After he died, I I, uh, I just didn't... I realized that that wasn't really the, the world for me. Like, the kind of... The bands that were coming up after... Right, like, you know what happened is... Melancholy and Infinite Sadness came yeah. out. And I just... And the rest of the guys in Aneurysm were like, this is great. And I just didn't like it. Yeah. I just thought it was stupid. And I thought the lyrics were bad. The, I thought, despite are. all my rage, I'm still just a rat in a cage. It's the dumbest fucking lyric ever. And I didn't want anything to do with it. And oh, the, wait, there's more dumb lyrics. Huh? Oh, I know. I <laughs> Actually, I like that part. Happiness and loneliness and loneliness and godliness and godliness and godliness and godliness and godliness. You know, that part's kind of cool. Um, but then, I didn't really, then I heard Rancid on the radio in Berkeley. Yeah. when I was back there, and I thought that that was kind of one of the cooler sounding things I'd ever heard. Then I, like, saw them, visually, saw a photo of them, and I was like, ah, well, that's what you that's are. <laughs>
like I had this list I found at my parents' house. I had a journal from sixth grade. And I'm like, it's a list of cool people. I I think you posted this. I did post it. It's pretty funny. Did you like like, to take a crack at it? Run it down a little bit? Yeah, so it started, I mean, Kurt Cobain's number one, and I think Jimi Hendrix's number two. But then it's like Dave Grohl's number three, and Chris Lewis's number four, then I think it's like Eddie Vedder's number five, Stone Gossip. So it just goes through Pearl Jam, Nirvana, uh, Hole, uh, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, and then Breeders, interestingly enough, L7, Pixies, uh, Smashing Pumpkins. Um, And then at the end, it's, it's like 50 people long, at the end, in a different pen, it says Tim Armstrong, and then that ends it. And that's the end. So, of, so you've come back to the list yeah, some yeah, number yeah. of months later yeah. and like, you know. Um, yeah, I came back amended and amended like, it. Uh, <laughs> to and then like, so that was naturally what I got into. And I got into kind of, and then I immediately gravitated towards hardcore. Were you, so I mean, on the rancid note, like, I mean, were you into some of those other, I guess, I'm trying to think, was Operation Ivy? Um, yeah, it was all the same. All the same sort of like different permutations of those groups. Well, if you were out there too, it was Berkeley. Yeah, yeah. Operation Ivy, I found out about through Rancid. I mean, Rancid, okay. I just kind of, like, would just read. I mean, that's what I did with Nirvana, too, is find absolutely every single piece Mind of writing. You basically yeah. reverse engineer a record collection through the yeah. influences of the person exactly. you like. Exactly. Yeah. It was kind of it's a... the hub-and-spoke approach. To right, the, the Spotify-related like, artists, kind of, but it was a lot harder to find out back then, and that's what I would do. Uh... But I was, you know, I would also, but there were punks, like, I bought, I, because of, I would, because there wasn't enough Nirvana material available, I would go and buy bootlegs. And the bootleg store was Generation Records, which is down yep. on, not McDougal, on Thompson, I think. And, but that was also the punk rock record store, so I'd go down there, and there was, you know, all these punks there. And I was, they were scary, but I was intrigued. And then, you know, there was the, the tape guy who sold the bootleg tapes, on St. Mark's was in fact Merle Allen, G.G. Allen's brother. So there was all, and I would go and buy tapes Speaking of him scary individuals. Yes. <laughs> he had a Hitler mustache and pale. Yeah, no, I remember. And, uh, and he would, you know, he would sell me, you know, Pearl Jam Live at Reading and stuff like that. And then one day I came and I had, this is after Alcom the Wolves came on, and I had drawn in pen Lars Fredrickson from Rancid's tattoos all over my arm. And Merle Allen grabs my arm and he goes, cool, man. He's like, oh. That's marker. <laughs> I was like, yeah, dude, I'm 12 years old. <laughs> I'm four foot ten. Like, come on, man. But uh, so I was just, a, I was, it was, I was around it, and uh, I, you know, um, was I, I just gravitated towards it, and it was also like suddenly I was like the best guitarist in this scene, you know, and I could kind of write songs that people, you know, when I was 13 and stuff, and they were. I just found that it was a very easy genre style of music for me to kind of did you excel at I mean did that put you in I mean that obviously put you in demand for you know to for bands and that kind of thing from I mean. in a way I mean I was also too young to really go to shows so like a lot of this was done uh, through I put a uh, a ad in Slug and Lettuce which is this kind of like crust punk free newspaper that they uh, that they would have in Generation Records or other places and um for to look for a band and I said no one over 15 need apply and the replies I got did not <laughs> <laughs> heed that uh, Mam- 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 just put it that way <laughs> um, 
But uh, I did that, and I also, the singer, do you remember, you know the band The Casualties? They're like New York, super spiky hair, kind of fashion punk, uh, friends of Rancid. Rancid, you know, Tim Armstrong would wear a casualty shirt, but the lead singer worked at Trash and Vaudeville, so I would just go, I was a, I was a punk between, you know, I'd get to St. Mark's at, 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 at 9.30 a.m., right? No one's there, and then I'd have to leave at 5 on a Saturday. <laughs> but he'd be there because he had to go to work. So he would give me tapes and stuff and tell me, you know, so I was kind of learning a lot before actually going to shows. But by the time I did go to shows, social disease was, I found just by early America online punk chat, I formed a band through that and I went to <laughs> nice. the bassist house in Nutley, New Jersey. That would be the most like, date-specific reference anybody can yeah. possibly make, which is like using an AOL chat for All of this is like, within like this whole... <laughs> The most, the, the, the formative years of my life and all of the, like, everything I'm talking about is probably within a year and a half. You well, know what I mean? We talk, like, we talk about this a lot, and, you know, Christian coming from D.C., you know, D.C. was sort of built on the backs of, of young people wanting to go see music. It's, yeah. it's a funny thing, but also, uh, you know, Christian talks about, you know, we, we talk about, you know, the guy at the record store. It was yeah. sort of being a massive influence, whoever that guy is. But in, in right. New York, you don't really have the same all-ages scene that you had in D.C., uh, correct? Not, not, not as all-encompassing. Like, it's, you had um, you had, uh, CBGB's, which is 16 and over, mm-hmm. which I had a fake ID saying I was 16 that they, then they wouldn't let me in. Confiscated repeatedly. Yeah, confiscated yeah, repeatedly. Okay. And uh, then Coney Island High had occasional all-ages, oh, yeah. but they were, it was just like... It's just fucking scary. I mean, it was not this sort of like it was junkies. I was gonna say it's also New York versus DC. Like the I I I mean I think the this scene here. I mean the crowds here would just were very different. DC kind of protects their own. It was yeah. It's a little like there's there's sort of a lookout for the like obvious fourteen year old mentality in that situation. I think which I mean is is also sort of built into the fabric of the music scene there. But like here, it's still sort of a. Every free man for, for himself. Yeah. Totally. I mean, it was also the it was the, it was the aftershocks of Gigi Allen. So it's like the street punks and the and they were junkies and they had swastika tattoos on their face and like they were at the show. But also, so it was like the kindly like vegan food not bombs like, and and so you had to kind of navigate. It was scary, but once you broke through, like I said, when I said it was navigable. Yeah, exactly. I found I found ABC No Rio, which was yeah. the all ages kind of anarchist collective in the Lower East Side um, that would have shows that start at 3 and ended at 8. May it rest in, well, may that location rest in peace. Yeah. I love that place. Me too, man. It's great. And, I, and that took me a while to find and like, but when I did, I started going to shows regularly and that was the scene. And uh, that's when Thulsa Doom formed and we, you know, started, our first show was with, I don't know, the singer of Thulsa Doom worked at Generation Records so she was kind of up there on the punk uh, totem pole. Um, so she had a lot of connections. I mean, that's how connections were made. People come to the record store and say, hey, could we play this show? Blah, blah, blah. Her first show is with Stratford Mercenaries, which is Steve Ignorant of Crass, like his first time in the U.S. in 10 or 15 years. And then we played the Subhumans, and like we got a lot of good shows because of her position at the record store. So that called... We, then we, we started like going on mini tours and things like that immediately. But Speaking of the scene... Uh, in the sort of broadest sense, um, 
we we had this discussion a while back where you said that you thought technology was sort of killing a scene mm-hmm. or the death of a scene. What's <clears throat> what, what, what's the logic behind uh, that? Well, I find it like okay. I'll use Thulsa Doom as an example because we're just talking about this. So Thulsa Doom was a band that the punk scene as it is now is so perfect. I mean, everyone's an expert, right? Because of the internet. So you can kind of hone your sound and your style of dress and the way you present yourself and the art and the albums and things like that so perfectly because you have endless exposure or, 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 or ability to, to kind of research something to, from beginning to end. But Thulsa Doom was a band that had kind of crusty, political, discharge lyrics, but the chords and the sound were a lot more pop-punk, but with screaming. So I think that that kind of... It made... It was just this weird... sort. Of, and then there was also the casualties were similar. There's a lot of similar bands in New York. When I play Thulsa Doom for people who got into punk later, it doesn't translate. They're like, it they just doesn't make sense. It's kind of... You can't categorize it as easily as... Uh, um, so you're saying that the the internet sort of well it facilitates on the one hand you know it it, it is a, it's an opportunity sure to, to like Great to see and find things yeah but it has a sort of leveling effect yeah yeah I think that, that that ignorance is kind of the 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 seed of creation in a way or or mistake like if you think right. about like uh, the 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 sailors going over to you know coming back from America coming back to Liverpool bringing these weird blues records from you know. New Orleans or something that nobody had even heard up in New York yet and then they bring them back and they play them for their children and their children kind of think try to make music like that but they can't and it ends up morphing into this bizarre rhythm rhythm, British rhythm and blues with incorporating the kind of like vocal exercises that British people do at the beginning of school every day and then that becomes the Beatles or you take a bunch of guys in Aberdeen, Washington, isolated from everything, who think that they're going to try to be like the the Melvins, but they also right. want to be like the Pixies, and they also want to be like, uh, um, you know. So you think that like isolationism is sort of the, you know, the the sort of uh, fer- is fertile ground for real creativity. Yes, we were talking about this, I think, in the context of the Wu Tang Clan being on Staten Island recently, which is like. You know, they were totally. divorced for sort of being cleaved from the rest of the, the you know, hip-hop scene of that moment. They they were sort of, they had to do their own thing. They, they weren't going to the choice. clubs. They right. weren't taking the drugs everybody else was taking. They were taking their own drugs. And they, and it, you can hear it. And it's yeah. like, um, I think that there just needs to be a certain amount of innocence for a scene to fester and mutate into what it is. Not necessarily a scene, but a sound. Um... And I think graffiti, you know, this is a lame example, but it's actually, you can really see it. When I was growing up, and I also, because that was also a rite of passage for New York kids, you had to write graffiti, Mm. there was the New York style, which is now thought of as like the graffiti style. There's the Philadelphia style, where the letters are very tall. There's the California style, where it's like based on a lot of kind of Mexican gang graffiti. Now, you go everywhere, it's gone. It doesn't exist, because you were only exposed to graffiti that you could see with your own eyes. But now you just go through and look at graffiti from yeah. all over the world. You look at Instagram, and like it's, it's you've got it's a ga- art gallery on your lap, basically. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think that that, in a sense, that has happened with music, and there's not, there's this. You're you're now competing on a platform with the rest of the it's world instead of the global, people yeah. who are in your. Yeah, well, Christian's got this, you know, sort of has this his own version of this study, spending as much time as he does in Myanmar, which has been closed off from the world 
huh. for such a long time. Yeah, and, yeah. And, well, and, and trying to you know bring this is the yeah bring punk over there and sort of explain it, then talk to friends about it, and you know guys, I mean, so bringing band T-shirts and. And records, basically. So the care, the musical care packages that Wyndham sent me when I was a kid, I'm basically taking with me on these trips out there. Um, but I then had this, like, really rude awakening when uh, I went back one time. And, it, you know, between my last trip and, and the trip I was on, uh, MTV had arrived, staged a large benefit concert against human trafficking, um, and Jason Mraz had played it. Uh-oh. Um, and everybody just fucking loves Jason Mraz so like any goodwill I had managed to sow in that country um had like just been completely turned on its ear in about 20 seconds so oh man it's like when you're like putting in all this work on this girl and you go away for the summer and like you come back and she's just dating like the like Like the older douchebag yeah exactly (laughs) so basically yeah Yang Gong is getting screwed by the oh man like when was that uh this was in 2000 14, I guess. So it was like, I literally, I had gotten to a point where like, I had friends who were listening to Bad Brains and like, the, there's this band actually called Side Effect out there, which you should check out. They, uh, they're from there? Yeah, and they played, um, they played South by Southwest like two years ago. Um, so they're, it's like, it, there's a, there's, they're trying. I mean, there's a real sort of enclave and it's like, it's a hard, weird place to do it. But in terms of, if you want to really like, isolated place to try and, uh, to well, you know what helps that is the old internet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you know, and and like I mean, that's one. I mean, punk, punk, punk. The punk scene can spring up anywhere, and, yeah. and it will always work. There'll always be people everywhere, all over the world, who are attracted to it. So I've actually got a, a couple of questions about that. But why don't we take a quick break? And uh, I'm sure. Back. Podcast. Uh, we're here today with Simon O'Connor of uh, many, many bands, including Say Simon Doom. Simon Doom. That's the one. That's the main guy. And uh, the key contributor to our uh, intro uh, with uh, Hair of the God. Sure. But what were you? What was your question, Christian? Well, so what was sort of the next uh, the next stop on your on your musical journey after that sort of initial window of thirteen? I mean, it sounds like we've gotten up to what thirteen years old. Yeah, we got like twelve and a half to. Through fifteen, okay, the, pre, the pre high school years. Yeah, well, then beginning of high school. Okay. Like I, I arrived the first day of high school, like full, fully punked out. But by the time, I think, a lot of it was, uh, I kind of met some cooler people in high school. I met some girls. Give us some context too. Where, where are you in high school at this point? Where am I? 
in Brooklyn. You live in Brooklyn. I know. I live in Morningside High School. I'm going to high uh, high school in Brooklyn. Okay. So, which is also it's a forty five minute commute each way, ninety minutes total. So I would start to make mixtapes for myself that I would listen to half on the way there, half on the way back. And this is the uniquely New York thing of everybody has to like apply through that test to go to different high schools, which means yeah. that you end up not going in your local district close to you. You can you, you go yeah you can go anywhere you go that. anywhere and like that's so you I just mean people from everywhere and like I immediately just kind of started to realize that that there were there was there were more interesting out interesting things out there than punk. Unfortunately, they there wasn't a lot of. You know, like I said earlier, it was a, it was it was the, the the in my opinion the golden age of, of New York hip hop. It was just post Biggie, but Wu Tang Clan were coming out with their second record then, and then you know you had Mob Deep, then you had Nas, and then you had Jay Z starting up, and you had you know MOP who I loved, and then like Beat Nuts, and it was a lot of backpacker hip hop, and then like Most Def and Talib Kweli, and like all of that stuff was going on, and that's what everybody liked, and I liked it too, you know, and I thought. But I was also getting to other music. I was getting to Frank Zappa and, um, well, I always had listened to Faith No More, but, like, I went down the bungle route, and uh, that led me to some weird places. And uh, I was getting more into jazz and things like that, and I, I found myself trying to kind of incorporate my other interests in Falls of Doom, which was a disaster. <laughs> Having, like, jazz... Jazz break. punk? Yeah, jazz punk. There was, like, a band called Candiria. There were two jazz punk bands. There's Candiria and there's Iceburn who are unlistenable. But uh, I thought that I could figure it out. And maybe Refused came out with The Shape of Punk to Come at that point. Or that was earlier, but I got to get getting into that. But I just thought everything had to come from punk, and that was the only way to make... I, did, I was completely unaware of indie rock or things like that at that time. I knew I liked Pavement from before and things like that, but I didn't know about a scene where people were in bands and playing that music until I got to college. Well, that's kind of more of a college thing. You know, yeah. I mean, that's more of a campus-based thing. I mean, New York has its scene. It's a, it's a very... New York's a strange place uh, to probably have a musical, you know, youth upbringing. Um, you don't really have college radio here. You have, uh, mm-hmm. you have some sort of underground pirate radio, which was largely hip-hop back when you were right. talking about. And then you've got... You know, mainstream radio, which in New York is is shamefully bad. bad. Yeah, there was there was not a rock station. There wasn't an alternative rock station. LIR, I guess, on Long Island. Yeah, I mean, there, there was K Rock that was that was. A, I don't even remember that was there when I was in high school. It may have started when I was in college. I mean, but right uh, as my friend Jason, who I talked about earlier, who was my rock friend from high school is two years older than me so he went to college first and he would come back from college and say hey like check this out like you like punk like have you heard wire they're also yeah. punk i'm like oh this is punk this sounds like crass oh you know because i went straight for hardcore like without i didn't do the 77 punk thing i didn't like listen to i mean it, the not being alive were, and is, is key to that yeah not, exactly exactly and like I listened to kind of the scene I was in and the influ- and the and then the and the bands are written on everyone's jackets. But like and then you say, Oh, here's here's all the the fall, but and then there's also can are are related, they're crowd again kind of coming back with all this cool stuff. And also there's this have you heard? This is like he brought me like the seven inch it was New York City cops by the strokes. And hard to explain. And they were like a New York band that people were starting to talk about. 
and the white stripes and things like that. And like, so I started getting into that at the end of high school and the beginning of college. It blew up, and it was exciting. And I meet, and then when I got to college, I met all the kids from all over the country, including Andrew Ben Weingarten, Ben Goldwasser, MGMT guys, and Will Berman, and formed bands and started to kind of play different sorts of music, which I was excited because I honestly thought when I was going to go to college, what I was what the best I could get was to be a guitarist in a live band hip-hop group, like The Roots. And I, there was one on campus, and I went to their shows, and I noticed they didn't have a guitarist, and I really thought, like, that's well, that's where I was. <laughs> I, I belong. Here's my future. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You go, jank. Jank. <laughs> you know? Um, it's always curious for me, because, you know, I, was, I had this sort of opposite uh, approach to this. I went to school with a bunch of New York City kids who, you know... Had, 14, 15, taught me a ton about different kinds of music. I taught them about, you know, a different breed of music. But it is, New York, as, you know, as cosmopolitan and much of an epicenter as it is, it cuts you out of little bits of, you know, there are certain blind spots that, you know, I I always said, you know, when I went to school with New York kids and I, I, you know, meet them and, and, you know, they knew how to get into clubs. They knew about every museum. They knew everything except how to ride a bike or play baseball. Yeah, or climb a tree. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's true. I mean, I, I, I think that there's a lot that I missed by, I kind of, I think Kurt Cobain's death caused me to reject mainstream rock, which kind of included everything from in my mind Sonic Youth to the Beatles and like I missed a lot of classic rock like I can't like I've been playing guitar for a long time but like when I'm you know rehearsal starting with one of the bands I'm in people like launch into a Led Zeppelin song like I still can't really play Just it crying in the corner yeah and like I love it but I got into it too late I when during the period where I would, I would just get into something and learn a whole record I wasn't listening to Led Zeppelin and I I made a song with Evan Dando a couple of years ago there's a lot of stories around that, but I'll just I'll tell the one the least interesting one, which is that he also said we were talking about the Grateful Dead and 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 other other. He, he said that he he felt similarly that he had missed classic rock because of going straight mm-hmm. from straight into punk at a very young age, where you don't you don't kind of build up and and, and build your knowledge naturally. And uh, I felt very similarly. So I was listening. I was catching up in college immediately, trying to kind of... I felt the same way, yeah. Because I spent a long time on pretty irrelevant music when mm-hmm. it comes down to it. Very, pretty marginal. Yeah, shit. very marginal. Uh, uh, something that I find myself rarely revisiting. I think the sound and the experiences are, are very in- are incredible. But overall, like I don't find myself listening to... like I went all the seven inches I have. I listened to most of those and... They're terrible. In a way, I mean, in a way, though, it also you're you are learning how to listen and how to be a, a sort of like an educated consumer, right? And that's yeah. like a big part of I mean, being attracted to those marginal bands and like because of the work involved and actually seeking it out, um, you know, it, it provides you with like a different set of skills, basically that I think you end up using a very specific, a very specific set, of, set of skills. Yeah, well, skills, you, exactly. well there's the, there's the you know the hardcore chivalry that I that. Uh, What's well, a coda that? Yeah, I mean a code of you know ethics that that kind of cripples you a little bit. Yeah, it does, but it also it's it's also, it's also you know how to play a show really well. You know how to load out like a motherfucker. Like you know how to like, <laughs> you know how to to sleep on a floor really well. You know how to do all these things that are important in any kind of rock and roll that you you know you yeah. choose to play. Um, you know how merch works. You know how to make a T-shirt. You know how. Uh, how long it takes to press a record, you know, things like that that I don't think you learn from 
the usual path of a rock musician. It's almost yeah. It's almost the it's it's a it, there's a whole trade to it, right? I mean, yeah. it's an entire it's a it's self sustained should have had a union. Yeah. I know. Well, it's still it's still here's the thing is that I, the, the record I was talking with a friend of mine who works with Dive, and we we're just talking about captured tracks. We're talking about who what who works in the industry, and he was just like explaining that the the labels that sell the most are labels like Capture Tracks who kind of sell records to grown-up punks in a way. Like mm-hmm. people who started in a scene, but also the indie rock scene was arguably like that as well elsewhere outside of New York where it was very much a DIY sort of kind of, you bought the record, you saw the band, you bought their record. You know, you always, you, you, your, your wardrobe consists exclusively of band t-shirts, which happens with me too. I'm wearing one right now. And, uh, and like two of us are actually. Okay. This is Lily's actually, yeah. so this was free. But um, uh, you know, I do think that, that 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 generation is going to die out, and then who knows what's going on. But like with the Simon Doom record, I don't, uh, I don't imagine. I'm not. I didn't make it for teenagers. I made it for people who are my age and maybe older, because I'm at the beginning. I always. I got into everything so young that I felt like my trajectory was the, was the same as somebody who's maybe four years older than me. Can I, I mean, can I ask, it's interesting to hear you say that. Do you, do you make it with an audience in mind? Uh, I made it, I, okay, this is a, it's a really good question. So, with my, with a lot of previous, uh, with other projects that weren't as personal, and I'm talking about more Amazing Baby and some Karoma and stuff like that, I found myself writing songs with the idea, with, with thinking about specific groups of people who would really like it. With Simon Doom, I wanted to make the a record for me that I would like and hopefully people like me would like. So it was less so. It was more like I've always, because of, you know, a lot to do with what I've, done and listened to in my life. I love I love the, the the point where punk becomes psychedelic and um, arguably void or psychedelic, but uh, I'm talking about more like Robin Hitchcock or or even We were listening to Soft Boys last night. Yeah. Actually. I mean I saw Robin Hitchcock with Yola Tango at um, Rough Trade doing Black Snake Diamond Roll, which was incredible. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Television personalities, and, um, and then even Echo and the Bunnymen, or things like that. Like I, I find that that's a very, it's a great XTC. When that happens, I mean that's just what I enjoy, and so that's what I want to do. And and, and you know, it's a very kind of early '80s vibe, and it's not 100 percent new wave. It's kind of, I mean, it could be. No, good. but it was pop. It, yeah. Its underpinnings were great pop songs. Yeah. I mean, they were all Beatles acolytes, essentially. Right. I mean, that's the shit I grew up on. Totally. You know, and we were listening to, you know, stuff like Joe Jack. I mean, for whatever reason, we were running around Brooklyn last night and, you know, heard Joe Jackson and, yeah. and uh, you know, some of the early 80s. But Joe Jackson, I even put, well, it depends. I mean, he changed a lot. But Joe Jackson, I, I put in kind of pure power pop. Yeah. But the cool thing about Robin Hitchcock is he, he, he embodied the sinister elements of the Beatles in particular, which a lot of other kind of psychedelia bands would steer clear of, like the sarcasm, the British sarcasm. Funny. It's funny, but it's also dark. Yeah. I mean, know? I think Joe Jackson is very funny, but like XTC, very dark, very funny. Yeah. Making Plans for Nigel. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a silly, it's a very funny song. It's, it's dark. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, you're talking about your mentally ill. <laughs> right. It's like it's like mongoloid kind of yeah. part two, or which was first? Mongoloid was first. From the Devo. The, the Devo song, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's but just, it's the British version of yeah, of like it's yeah, a less yeah. it's a less blunt instrument. It's a, yeah. it's a slightly more clever well, way of talking about crazy people. Yeah, it's sort of it's, but it's also it's, it's how the British refer to health issues. Basically, yeah. it's like from a <laughs> distance and like very politely. Yeah, it's like well, you know, he's yeah. he, he he had a problem with cocaine for twelve years, so we sent him to the country for the weekend. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's um, the way to do it. Um, anyway, you want to take a break and we'll come back and sounds good. Sure. Podcast. Uh, I'm Wyndham Lewis, your host, and I'm back here with uh, my brother Christian Lewis, and we're here today with Simon O'Connor of Simon Doom and a lot of other yeah. uh, uh-huh. bands. But um, Simon was telling us a story about uh, um, his travails and travels through Europe. Oh, well, we were just talking about kind of elaborating on the who the Simon Doom record is for is kind of people, you know, there's people like like Christian and Wyndham and I who are music nerds who love buying records and that's something, and going to shows and things like that, that uh, we are used to doing, grew up doing. But uh, then, there, you know, and I said for everybody else, there's EDM, and I was just talking about going to see Skrillex at a festival in, in uh, France, in the south of France, and I was with Andrew... In Wine Garden, standing watching from the side of the stage with Andrew in Wine Garden, Patrick from Black Keys, and we, he just started and and like we just all looked at each other and we just said like I don't I don't understand I don't get it like what, what's going on here What's he doing What are these people When does, When's the dance part How are they dancing Are they all on ecstasy <laughs> And also that's we the weird thing is the crowd suddenly morphed into kind of like. Uh, state school douchebags from the U.S. Even though we were in France, like there were like solo cups, there were girls on shoulders, there were a lot of like baseball hats. It was a, it was a Buffett concert or Kenny Chesney. It was crazy, thing. and and you know what? It didn't. There was just everyone was doing the same dance the whole time. It was like that Simpsons kind of animation of people dancing at Homer Palooza, but except <laughs> with a lot more kind of fingers in yeah, the air. A lot air. of air punching. A lot of air punching. <laughs> Um, well, as a state school douchebag, yeah. um, I'd like to ask <laughs> yeah. the question of, you know, I mean, and, and I, I wonder about this, and this is, you know, part and parcel with this whole podcast. Um, you know, am I aging out of what's relevant, or is what's relevant 
unappealing. I mean, it's always a question I ask myself, and it's a hard thing mm-hmm. to, to sort of reconcile sometimes. I don't know. I mean, this is something, like, I found myself immediately, like, as soon as I started... Punching the air. Punching the air. Well, I've been punching the air for a long time, but, like, <laughs> when I was in college... And I started to be in indie rock bands, and I started to play indie rock shows back in New York. Uh, I found myself extremely critical of what was going on musically. One summer I loved the Strokes, the next summer I hated them, you know. And uh, the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, what I lo- I had, you know Interpol, like all these bands that were blowing up at the time. I had a very, if they would make one. One move I didn't like, I would write them off immediately as as posers or as just not, you know. Uh, was that, I mean, also this was your, what, uh, 15 at that point? No, no, I was, was like, like 20. Sorry, no, you were 20. I was 20. Yeah, exactly. But I, I think that is the time when you're most critical and you're most willing to sort of, you know, I mean, you're, you're sort of figuring out what defines you as a yeah. person, so you're you're doing it through dismissal of other people and acceptance of other people. It's sort of a... You know, your taste is your personality at mm-hmm. that point. The, the critical part of your your personality, and I mean that you know, from like a music criticism or whatever. That that like that muscle is really is growing in college, right? You're, like, yeah. you're thinking skeptically about things, and you know, and how to um, yeah, and that but that softens later. I mean that that there the time you know when I couldn't watch Die Hard because it was fucking bullshit, and then you know as I turn 40 I'm like yeah, it's an enjoyable movie right that's yeah no, it's true I think that you, you you suddenly think that you're that's why when my you know dealing with people at that age who are that age is difficult because you suddenly think that you're an adult but you're actually not but a lot of the ways you have to prove you're an adult is by having very strong opinions because you're finally right you've been wrong your whole life and you're <laughs> finally right and it feels really good but you also kind of in the back of the head know that you're not right but you know I mean this we were talking we were talking about earlier about kind of the, you know the whole punk era that I was describing in my life was between the ages of twelve and a half through fifteen when I was just, you know pretty much a little kid and I remember coming back I remember going when I was in college I looked different you know I came back and went to a punk show at CBGB's uh, which was almost closing and with some of my college friends and and I saw uh, this guy we called Big Mohawk Stewart who no longer is Big Mohawk Stewart he is was full, fully droogged out that was his look and he was probably in his late 30s at that time and had the you know fake eyelashes on and he was hanging out with a bunch of 16 year old girl punks and he came up to me and he goes Simon and he's like yeah oh hey Stewart he's like oh and he looks me up and down like oh look at you man He's like, and he says to one of the girls, like, this guy was 12 years old, man, and he told me, I'm going to be a punk for life. And I'm like, yeah, dude, if you asked me when I was 11, I'd be like, well, I'm going to be a professional baseball player. And <laughs> year before, I was going to be an astronaut. But, like, you know, I think that I do, but to go back to your initial question, Wyndham, about are we, does shit suck or are we aging out of it? Like, I don't. I don't really know because I, I started to be critical so long ago and continue to be so that I I think that there's a lot I think that there's always cool stuff going on. I do think that it's 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 harder to kind of 
see it as pure because there's so many distractions. It's harder to find a scene, which I think goes back to uh, technology, and it's it's it does it, everything seems a little bit more contrived because everyone's cheating because they did the they can, they have access to this kind of inaccessible stuff that from you had to achieve that we had to achieve through. I used to yeah hard like, work hard work exactly and it took a long time and a lot of research and before I went to my first punk show I knew a lot and I had everything was perfect I had the jacket I had I had to I had to kind of study and get ready and prepare and train and then I was out there but I think that's you one know? of the that's one of the major questions now is that like when I was going to my first punk shows as a kid it's like I had done exhaustive research but you could exhaust research then. It's like there was mm-hmm. only so much you could yeah. find out about something. And now, like, the if you tried to exhaust the research, you would never leave your room. Right, which some don't. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> but it's a, you know, it's a strange thing. It's like, you know, they're, they're, you know if, if you've got an inexhaustible research, I, I you know, frequently say, it's, you know, it's the old, you know, taking a, a, a drink of water from a, from a fire hose. It's like there is there's unlimited choice now, and so it's it's a really hard thing to sort of narrow down mm-hmm. what I guess defines you now. And I wonder how kids deal with it. It's a strange thing. I mean, you've got a son that's that's you know going to grow up in a very very different yeah. atmosphere, who's never not going to know the, the world of unlimited choice. I know. I mean, I I've always had. I think the unlimited choice thing is something I've always had an issue with. Uh, you know, even even with recording technology, you should be forced to make hard choices. Like it's part of how you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's part of what defines how you your. Evolve. Yeah. No. Exactly. It's part of how you develop that like totally. critical sense, though. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just. I. I think that. I don't know. A stylist friend of mine, who, you know, I consider to be very cool. Uh, just said to me. Oh, I asked her. Like, I'm like, is I feel like things aren't cool anymore. Like, no, she said, "You're right. Like, no, things aren't cool. We're going through a period of time where like stuff's not cool at all. It's like a but, super cycle, right? Yeah. Like we're on, we're just on the bottom end of that. I'm like, oh, all right, okay. But you know, who knows, man? But she's also my age. Like, I don't really. I think that like, this is what every generation thinks, and. Maybe sometimes they're right, but I but I also think that things maybe haven't been cool for twenty years. I since, don't know since Kurt Cobain died. sense though because that's the, the late 90s stuff was I wasn't relating to that's well that's because you were cool not yet I was already post cool <laughs> I was still proto cool I think at that point no I was like 28 <laughs> years old then you know oh, yeah that's it well, yeah, when do you stop being on the I, I, I don't know I felt like I stopped caring what 
I, I stopped referring things to things as guilty pleasures around that time because it's like, you know what? I either like shit or I don't like shit. Right. Well, it's true. We also... I... Me getting into hardcore punk from alternative rock wasn't easy. I didn't like it. It was like smoking cigarettes. Like, I had to kind of, like, put myself through it. And arguably, I was listening to, like, not the best to kind of That's get through that. so funny. That's the first time I've ever really heard somebody articulate that, though. But I remember being in the exact same you position. You have to condition yourself. Because like, this shit, like, let's be totally honest. <laughs> like, if you've grown up listening to, like, melodic music, yeah. you know, and, and have, you know, it's like... I grew up on the Beatles. Like, it wasn't easy to, to right. get into hardcore at, like, 14. And I was just like, okay, okay, I, I want the credentials that come with this. Right. So I'm doing it. And you then know, it's just like, you just have to then you, fucking then throw you do yourself it, in. It's really hard, which is why I was trying to infuse jazz in the hardcore. But that's why, that's why <laughs> I like the Dead Kennedys. Right. You know, it was it, it wasn't hardcore. It was, it was, there was a guy who could play guitar. Right. But if you go in the right, I mean, I could probably set something up to get some a, a, a the pedestrian's guide to hardcore punk in the order of yeah. albums to listen to. But I started de- I started with because I got Punkorama, the Epitaph compilation, and there was Total Chaos, who are a garbage band from LA, <laughs> who are on it, and they just and they su- the songs weren't good. So I'm like, I guess it's just like bad songs with screaming. <laughs> but that's not true because a lot of yeah. really good songs were yeah, screaming. Yeah, but I mean, there was also you know there was Pure Attitude, which was great, like um, Fear. For mm-hmm. instance, was a great yeah. band, yeah. purely because they were so antagonistic right. and just had that, like their their mission statement was apparent. It's like we are going to piss you off, right, right, right. And then there was stuff where I wanted to hear the music, you know, sort of Dead Kennedys. I guess this is early punk, so yeah. Um, you know, I sort of grew up on on that stuff. But then you know when it got into like just hardcore for the sake of hardcore. It didn't really appeal to me as much. Yeah, but I think Jagger for the sake of... I mean, that's a lot of my issue with the New York hardcore scene at the time. And I, I think that I was in the punk scene is that the New York hardcore scene was very brutal and very... I mean, violent. all those guys ended up yeah. being cops. And, like, and... Uh, it was a, violent. It was very awesome. violent. And there were no girls, too. Yeah. No girls. You go to hardcore shows, no girls. You go to punk shows, lots of girls. That's a bunch of... Not like lots of girls. Kickers. Yeah, it's yeah. like... I mean... But which is why Jeremy like strayed and went to like Dave Matthews and Fish shows, even though he hated the music. He was like, "That's where the girls Dave are." Dave Matthews. <laughs> so here's the thing: Do you blame Pearl Jam for Dave Matthews? Where no. did he come from? You know what? I Bruce am, Springsteen. I'm not a I think the model is. I think the model of that, like, I mean, you know, name, huge band, very musical, like almost, almost like an orchestra behind you, kind of thing. I think I, it's equal parts Grateful Dead and, and Bruce Springsteen. I have a, you know, I have a, I don't have a soft spot for Dave Matthews. I'm not a big Dave Matthews fan. He's from my hometown and is like a, a really good guy. So it's like a hard thing for me to like really virulently hate. I kind of think he's a good, cool dude. Yeah, exactly. I've heard interviews with him and I think he's really cool. He's awesome, but I just don't like his music. And he dumped his, his poop all over those, uh, the crew team or whatever. In Chicago, yeah. yeah that's not that cool, actually. It's kind of funny. It's not his fault. It's, I mean, come on, the bus driver. Yeah, why don't do that over a bridge? Yeah, if you'd autograph that. If you'd autograph that, yeah. But, you know, I just like that sort of, that world. But his vocals. Oh, it's his, I don't, but where does that come from? That's not Bruce Springsteen at all. Like, the concept, like, I Bruce Hornsby. Like, is that what he sings like? I don't know. I've heard Bruce, I don't, I don't even think I've, like, 
I don't think I've ever really kind of... Well, Bruce Hornsby became the keyboard player for The Dead. I think all those guys like The Dead, and I've never been able to... I mean, we've had that long conversations but about yeah. The Dead where I like I just I firmly don't understand it. like, And I don't like it, but I, I dabble in it every once in a while to go like, what is everybody else hearing that I'm not hearing here? And I still walk away going, this sucks. I think... I, I agree. I'm st- no, I'm now obsessed with this question about where Dave Matthews' voice comes from, and I think you could, <laughs> no. I think you could track it back to. I'm trying to piece this together, but I think there's like there is a there is like almost a jazz. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. An old jazz. <laughs> it's like it's weird. You know who has that though? A little bit Tracy Chapman. Yeah, definitely. No, he had. I went the first time I ever heard Tracy Chapman. Like it's so I thought it was a new James Taylor album. There you go. So there he did it. James Taylor. I was uh, damn it. Maybe I was going oh, right shit. back to that like folk, you know, that folk era where people it's like it's like breath manipulation is like a huge part of like uh, uh, yeah how you control your your voice, but it's it's the. Uh, There's a, it's just the percussive amplified acoustic guitar. Just, yeah, it's like. Fuck. It's, yeah. Yeah. No, it's like. But you know it's what? like scat for yep. it's white people. Yeah. It's. I think that Dave Matthews, in a way, is more connected. Like Blues Traveler also came out around the same time. Are they from here? I think they're, they're from, from Jersey, Princeton. aren't they? They're Jersey. Okay. And like, a lot of that. I mean, and spin doctors. Spin doctors, because 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 oh. Pearl Jam had elements of that. They loved to jam. Who they were playful. They were playful and they liked to jam and they 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 kind of they celebrated the non metal guitar solo in a way that uh, hadn't really happened in a while. I mean, I guess they, you know, I mean to to toss this back in your face, it ultimately comes from the Almond Brothers. Uh, yeah, I think that's a little. Who are the Almond Brothers? Yeah, that's my joke. Um, <laughs> they uh, Mark Almond and uh, all right. <laughs> so, so they okay. So yeah, I mean, I think that there's a little bit of of sort of that type of uh, what are, I mean Americana, but the Almonds didn't know they were doing. Yeah, but it's but the Dead is noodly. I mean, they you know they love the the Grateful Dead. Are they noodly or are they just tuning their shit? <laughs> yeah, well, the Grateful Dead. Uh, <sighs> Basically, you might be right, but I'm really. I don't want to allow no, this to be true. Be, <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be playing. <laughs> Would you like the Warlocks? Have you the heard that original? stuff? Yeah, yeah, no, I know, I don't. Okay, because I think I do the, think Jerry Garcia without Bob Weir would be a much better band. Well, the, wasn't that was it Bob Weir the documentary and Bob Weir? Yeah. So Bob Weir was saying in that documentary, I think that he's we talked about when the Grateful Dead first started. First started took acid and, and they were at the strip club. He's like, yeah, we took acid and we're all like looking at each other and we're like, hey. Oh, who's gonna end the song? Like, I'm not gonna end the song, and you know, the other guys like, I'm not gonna end the song. And that's I said, still a fucking exactly. Question, by the way. That's the problem. <laughs> that's exactly what's going on. Is everyone's just like, I'm just gonna keep playing because I listened no. to Friend of the Devil the other day because we put it on one of our mixes because we had mentioned the Grateful Dead. Yeah, and I was listening to it and I'm like, it's not a bad country song, Friend of the Devil, and then. Phil Lesh is playing like a fucking symphony in the background. It's just like, you know, it's mm-hmm. it, it just goes like there's way too much fussiness going on right. underneath. Well, what it is, just you know, whereas it's, like if they were the Stanley Brothers, it's, it's fucking selfish, is what it is. Yeah, it's it people is. who like playing and just want to sit there and play all it's, day it's long. Drug, it's, it's like, drug, it's EDM of your yeah, yeah, you know, and well, like but so Don, this is actually this yeah. is, I've. 
so we were talking, we made that exact same point like two weeks ago, and partly it's the same, it's the communal experience with the audience that like, right. you know, it's it's huge, it's huge throngs of people in a field who are just like fucked up out of their minds, um, and sort of just getting absorbed in like literally endless droning well, it's a types loop. of it's, music. They yeah. play the music at these people, these people dance back at them, you look at how they're dancing and it's the perfect explanation for what this music sounds like. Yep. But there's yeah. a there's a there's a lowest there's like a Same common there's like a common denominator yeah. component of this music that's just like yeah no it's it's like, to, one is punching about, air the other one is is trying to dry hump air it's very similar <laughs> it's very similar and, and it's kind of it's you know the emperor has no clothes if you don't take the drugs exactly and like and the great and a fish have who are worse than Grateful Dead have met, they basically just you know. Jerry and Garcia died at the right songs time. All, all together. What what fish are are they write songs that have moments that sound like songs that you like, <laughs> but they're not actually those songs. Yeah, and well, that's what works on drugs. Like I know this, and then I they love this. abandon ship. Yeah, <laughs> like oh, why was I talk? What was I just thinking about? And like, and that's what they do. Yeah, it's the sort and of the basis is a muumuu wearing turban. <laughs> <laughs> But um, whatever yeah. happened to that band Dispatch? I'm sure they're doing. They were big. Speaking of wearing moomoos, were they local too? Because I remember they, they were from Boston. 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 Yeah, like all bad. I bet that they're fine. They're, <laughs> the, the, you know, there's so many. They're. I bet they're still very relevant. You know why those bands exist? Because colleges like Colby exist. There it's you like go. there's like this, you know, this. Fundamentally, there's this tiny little community that 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 considers that. Um, a step above other things, and and that's who listens to this music. Well, I think it's I think I agree, and I think I think that what we're kind of hitting the nail on that, like what we're what we're gearing towards is like, and that's that's why I was talking. I was talking about Colby when I talked about the, the, the with the French people transformed into us and described as the state, but uh, which is weird because they went from you know wearing berets, needing baguettes to just like wearing these baseball hats and you know. Punching air, yeah, and roofing each other's wine, <laughs> but I, um, uh, I think it's that like it's like my <laughs> issue with why I haven't ever been able to watch Moulin Rouge in its entirety is because I feel like how many times have you tried this? Three, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> one time was the only movie on the airplane, and I was like, I would rather sit, I sit here here and furious silence rather than this. I got up and left the airplane, parachuted yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. out of there. But I, uh, I think it's music. It's 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 music for people who don't really like music that much, and they kind of need to tie it into some other sort of experience. Yeah, this is, uh, this is this a great is the Hamilton rap. Uh, yeah, that's another Wesleyan guy. Yeah, um, it is. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's sure. A, yeah, yeah, Hamilton is 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 the musical that your dentist will tell you that yeah, you would but it's, the, it's also the most rap your dentist has ever heard which is why it's called a rap music like, I'm almost like, nervous yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> here we go but uh yeah I mean good for him I mean that's it's, no, it's, it's genius in a way it's yeah. genius, in a way it is genius but uh I do think that that's kind of what my issue was yeah if with, you can mollify anything you can sell it yeah you can't be real
Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Uh, we are here with Simon O'Connor of Simon Doom, among others. And um, we are approaching the tail end of our Greatest American Band Bracket Challenge. And, I mean, it's a simple question, Simon. Uh, who's the Greatest American Band? Quick, quick, not a simple here. question. Um, <laughs> this, was, this, was a very, this was a very lengthy process of whittling down sort of what the, what the rules are. Basically, you know, it's not going to be like a named... Duo like uh, like a Simon and Garfunkel. Um, we ruled out Bruce Springsteen, Tom Petty because they're close to being mm-hmm. solo acts. Um, so it really is it has to be a a, a band band. So rock not like band. a vocal group, a rock, rock band. band. Yeah. But okay. But what's the criteria for for greatest? Well, if you just no, you uh, know what? yeah, like lasting influence, all of it. You uh, have to yeah catalog of work. Like because I I honestly think that Nirvana may have been the greatest American band in the sense that they turned music on its on, on its head and still are weirdly the biggest and most rebellious that might, well that, is a band. Com- that is a completely valid answer and I, I think that might be it like the point where my Jim uh, from my band teaches guitar lessons to you know 13 year olds and they still want to learn they still want to learn Nirvana you know yeah. and that, that still that still makes them feel the feeling that I felt when it was actually coming out and that's pretty cool yeah, they can tune all their fucking no, guitars but they didn't down have that much step which is really annoying when you're 14 years it, old it, it <laughs> absolutely you know I always describe it as a supernova I mean I was um, uh, in college when it came out and it blew the doors off of everything. It changed everything. Yeah. You've recently described everything as a supernova, but yes, I think this really no, is the supernova. It's like, this um, is a, this is truly the, yeah, the extraordinary blinding light of like, you know, and the other thing I think about with Nirvana is like, man, if you had to pick a single band that you wanted to be like the ambassadors of American music, like the thing that you would show the foreigners or the Martians if they'd never heard it before, mm-hmm. that like sort of pretty much sums it up, that's a pretty good one. They're yeah. The, they're the T-Rex of America. Yeah. The T-Rex... Yeah, I think they're better than T Rex. I know, I'm kidding. But I think that T you know, unfortunately America didn't have its T Rex at the time. Because the no, glam movement and I've heard you say this, the people who equate the hair metal movement uh to as glam. As glam. But what what was America's glam movement at the time? It was it was Alice Cooper and Kiss and people who were who were ugly guys who were putting on makeup to hide their ugliness, right. not pe- people not pretty guys pretty guys who were putting on who makeup to sens- yeah. accentuate their femininity. You know, and I think that so that happened later. But that is American sexuality versus, you know, European British sexuality. Yes. You should, you should start a glam band. I've the costumes there. would be fun. Man. They would be fun. <laughs> it's but it's not. There's nothing. But then there's the well. There's the New York Dolls in there who kind of did yeah. the. Well, they were ugly guys. They were not. Not Alice not, to that degree, not to that degree. No, not to that. Johnny Thunders. Not to that degree. Like I think that you know, but I also think that like Slade. I do think glam is punk too. Like I think that glam is a return to old fifties rock and roll, and like Slade Dressed up, yeah. were skinheads before they were glam mm-hmm. in their early days. And I think a lot of squeeze skin- were skinheads before they were pop. They were, huh? Mm-hmm. Gang Four were kind of skinheads too. I think I had a skinhead in the band, but Oi music is very close to glam. This is totally yeah. irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> um, I anyway. think that at some point, yeah, we, like we should inherit the job of being the guys who subcategorize the genres on all music. I've always thought that that would be like the, the best. You should, of like, yeah. That would just be the most fun, you know? Yeah. By the way, Sylvain Sylvain and Arthur Kane, not good no, no, guys. No, no, no. 
Definitely. Johnny Thunders was a little bit sexy, but no. The rest right. of them pretty heinous. Yeah, but, you, but, but you know, uh, David Johansson looked like Mick Jagger. A so, little bit. Who, sang like... Not uh, my, you know. Yeah. Sang like, a, sang like Eric Burden. Um, so now that we've done Fuck, Mary, Kill for... Uh, yeah. For <laughs> <New York calls>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we, we're, we're, we're going to end, uh, end this podcast like we end every podcast by asking uh, Simon, what are you listening to these days? What am I listening to? I'm listening to... Uh, it, uh, Colin Newman record commercial suicide, which really? uh, I don't know if you've heard it. It's, it's great. Colin Newman from Wire. Yeah. Um, it's it seems to be a like a bedroom record. There's no drums on it. It's pretty much all keyboards and vocals. And uh, the last track is him explaining how he recorded it. So it's not like I guessed this. He he tells you. Um, well, it's, it's funny because we were listening to uh, <laughs> Magnetic Fields yesterday. Uh, whose uh, first their, track is called How Do You Play? It was a, they've got their 50-song memoir out now, which is actually, yeah, it's supposed to be. I, the couple of reviews I've, I've seen have said, you know, this may rival their 69 love songs, which is, like, a pretty pretty bold statement. But the first song we listened to was, like, you know, this is how you play a keyboard. Or this is how you play a synth, uh-huh. um, which is a, which is an explanation of how you play a synth. And to all a different song. things it's you can do with it. Yeah, it's and that's the song. And much, so this yeah. would be Colin Newman's version. There of... you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Except his is the last one. Yeah. So you can kind of skip it. Um, but yeah, let's listen to that mostly. Also, Dr. Hooker, kind of L.A. psych. Have you ever heard Dr. Hooker? No. It's cool. He looks like Jesus. I've heard of Dr. Hook. Yes. This is Dr. Hooker. Um, same time. So we'll we'll just wrap up by saying you know definitely check out the uh, the Simon Doom um, album Baby Man when and it comes out. If you're in Brooklyn, and uh, if you oh, are yeah. in New York, yeah, um, you said you've got a show coming up as well. Yeah, right? we're playing a day party at Union Pool, and hopefully it'll be nice out on the second of April, which is a Sunday. At uh, whole show starts at two p.m. Uh, so come early. I think we play we play last, but that's probably like four or five. I think um, it's it's safe to say brother 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 will be represented. Yeah, at this, and I want uh, at this show. I just want to say I'm a really huge fan of the podcast, and I, I think I've listened to almost all of them. And it's an honor to be on it. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Keep up the good it's work. Great. Thank you so much for coming on. This was uh, this was a ton of fun. Awesome. Hopefully, we'll uh, we'll get you back soon. All right. Yeah. That's it for this episode of Brother, Brother, Brother Podcast. Many thanks to Simon Doom for our intro music, Hair of the God, and to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Tweet our mistakes and your recommendations and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Until next time, on behalf of Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you for listening.